Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the proliferation of organizations working to engage people across difference and the urgency this work has taken on in recent years as people in the U.S. become more and more polarized. This is Civity Week on News in Context. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. My guest is David Eisner, CEO of the nonprofit bridging organization, Convergence. All right, well, David, we're thrilled to have you here. And you've done convening work, or at least it's been sort of in there for a lot of your career. Why is convening across difference a priority for you or so important for you? It feels to me like America doesn't have a bigger challenge than the fact that we're so divided that we don't understand each other, that we have lost the ability to be generous and to listen to each other, and that we're seeming to lose the general understanding that's required in any democracy that you can lose and you don't take your marbles and go home. You keep playing the game and that the game comes around. It feels like we're at a, a really terrible fork in the road. And I know that I feel like I get enormous fulfillment from working as hard as possible, pushing my own shoulder against the wheel to support the millions of Americans, really the majority, that are frustrated and tired with the divisiveness and the dysfunction and uh, showing pathways that we can actually move ourselves out of that divisiveness and dysfunction. I am an optimist, um, but someone uh, said, I'm a worried optimist. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what I am. I'm a worried optimist. You know, you've been in this work for a long time. You, you mentioned this, you know, potentially terrible fork in the road. So my, my question for you was, you know, do you think things have changed over the course of your work and how are they different? And as part of that, Are you hopeful? My current feeling is one of tremendous ambivalence. And ambivalence doesn't mean I'm in the center. It means I'm in both places. I'm both very pessimistic and very optimistic. I'm pessimistic because it feels like uh, the folks that um, either profit or gain power from dividing us are going to be pushing really hard in 22 and beyond in a way that's likely to exacerbate uh, the toxicity of our polarization. I'm optimistic because it's become clear through uh, evidence-based programming that polarization is not that difficult to ameliorate person by person. We're just concluding a dialogue at Convergence on guns and suicide prevention. And one more time we learned the truth that you can bring people together across extraordinary differences, like the participants in our dialogue had on the issue of guns. And it doesn't take that long of people getting together, hearing each other, learning together, learning about each other for them to build trust. The trust is buildable. People can overcome even the deepest divides and can work together on really important issues that we share in common. And so the fact 
first of all, that it's possible. And second of all, that there's a very strong growing community of organizations in the bridging space that are uh, like Civity, like Convergence, like Braver Angels. There are many, many organizations. In fact, there's over 350 of them uh, doing this work. And so the fact that we know they can succeed and that there's so much capacity out there it is a wonderful sign for us. And it's daunting because we're pushing up against such a, a powerful divisiveness machine that's going to be in full evidence uh, during the midterm elections. Yeah, the machine versus the one-on-one. I think that's been the challenge, right, is, is that, yes, this work is so rewarding and so meaningful and so effective when you can get people face-to-face, but the machine or the power structure can use multimedia effectively to sort of send these messages. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how Convergence um, approaches the work of convening and bridging these divides and whether you have any thoughts on how we can push back on that sort of power structure. Convergence for 12 years has been building and refining a very powerful model where we identify an issue that is stuck. It's a a major public issue where we're not able to uh, achieve a solution because there's too many interests that are opposing each other and they can't find ways to engage with each other. They can't find ways to overcome the, the divide. And we have a methodology that we uh, bring somewhere between 20 and 30 of them into one space across the deepest divides. Um, We know that we're gonna be together for somewhere around a year in discussion. And in the first several months, the whole exercise is about building trust and uh, helping uh, everybody in the discussion understand that there's nobody in the discussion that doesn't have goodwill and helping everyone in the discussion understand that they share common ground and the most important values that they're trying to uh, drive forward. So for example, in this recent guns dialogue, all of the participants, whether they were gun manufacturing representatives or they were representatives of what you might call the gun control community, everyone wanted to prevent gun-related suicides. And once everybody fully believed that everybody else was in the discussion, not to diminish them, not to villainize anybody, not to take advantage, but to pursue opportunities for lowering gun deaths, uh, the discussion took a completely different path. Uh, And that, that requires trust, but that trust is buildable. Yeah, you know, it's civity. We call it. We've come to call it the conversation before the conversation. You can't just walk in and start talking about the issue because there is that distrust or mistrust, or I don't know you, or whatever it is. Um, and so you do have to take that time, which I think for a long time we as a society thought that was just built in, baked in, and we didn't have to spend time on it. And I think now there's a greater and greater realization that. No, we actually have to set aside the time and the structure and the space to do that because it's part of the work. I think some of us know this technically as affective behavior change. 
And what we're really trying to do is to eliminate the distortions in people's thoughts. And we see um, two major areas of distortion that are driven by, by this kind of toxic polarization. The first distortion is, is motive misattribution. Uh, people in my group do things out of love. People in your group do things out of hate. Um, the second um, uh, distortion is that we moralize our differences. It's not just that we have different beliefs, but your beliefs are fundamentally evil uh, and they're out to destroy democracy. And in fact, they're probably illegal. And uh, we see that playing out as well. The thing that I find um, most curious about this phenomenon is that people who are well-educated tend to um, believe in their distorted perceptions with more certainty than people that are not educated. So, so educated people who are stuck in polarization are more likely to be absolutely certain that the other side is acting illegally, absolutely certain that they're operating out of malevolence, um, which is fascinating because it becomes then harder to help people who are better educated understand that they're operating uh, through a haze of this distortion. Wow, that is fascinating. Given that you've been in some of these political spaces, one of the, and this might be exactly what you're getting at, but one of the issues I think on the, I don't know, progressive side, the educated progressive side is, uh, you know, when it comes to race and gender, um, there is this real imperative of, you know, if you, you're not recognizing my humanity. And I think that's one that we're ha we've been grappling with in our society. And I don't know if you've talked about any of this in your work, um, but I would love if you could, if, you know, maybe to get specific about this issue of seeing each other's humanity versus seeing someone else's evil in this, in this sort of, I feel like my life is in danger context. We see uh, challenges all the time as people would like to set preconditions to bringing people together for conversation. Sure, I'm happy to have a discussion so long as they stipulate A, B, or C. And that's particularly challenging when it feels like the thing that is being asked to stipulate sounds reasonable. Someone says, well, I just need them to stipulate my common humanity. The challenge is, having gone through that a few times, that it's not just common humanity, that what ends up happening is we end up saying we need them to stipulate that they agree with our solutions in order to recognize our common humanity. So you end up having a negotiation before a discussion. These kinds of dialogues don't work with those kinds of preconditions. However, there's a much bigger issue here, which is for centuries, the work of bridging has actually impeded uh, the work of social justice. Too often in our past, when um, we see the opportunity to move forward on a social justice issue, um, let's say racial justice, we hear from people, well, 
let's make sure that everybody's along for this decision. We need to do this as a full society. We can't actually uh, accomplish these goals unless we're operating together. And so what happens is that the call for people to uh, come together to address something like racial justice has often been a way to protect the status quo. It's a very different moment now. Right now, I think most of the folks that are highly focused on bridging, especially political bridging, are really concerned about the, the likely prospects of, of civic violence. We're really concerned that we're passing uh, this junction where if we don't find a way to work together, um, we're going to suffer the kind of um, violence and domestic catastrophe that we've only seen in other countries. And so when I'm asked, which should we do first? Should we first um, pursue a, our social justice agenda or should we first be bridging our community and bringing Americans together? To me, the only answer is we have to be able to do both. Yes, there's absolutely tension. And there's tension on, on all sides because it's very difficult within some communities to articulate a racial justice agenda uh, that those communities are able to hear and are able to uh, assimilate. Uh, just as it's very difficult within the racial justice community to hear or assimilate the uh, challenges that, that some of those communities have around uh, pursuing racial justice. However, it feels like we can neither accept delay on moving past racial injustice, and we can't delay in moving past this um, slide that we're on towards civil violence, civic violence. And so um, we really need to be able to do both together, even though they're, in, they're somewhat in tension with each other. I appreciate that. You naming that, I think that's the first time I've heard someone name that, the idea of bridging used to subsume social justice. And now it's a moment we've got to figure out how to work with those tensions. What we do at Convergence starts with making sure that we bring true and deep diversity uh, to our tables. So we really ensure that we include the voices of people that are most impacted, often disproportionately affected by the issues and the policies and the problems that we're addressing. And we find that when we do a really good job of assembling a diverse table, that uh, on the other end, the consensus um, solutions do a good job of serving the needs of diverse communities. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with David Eisner, CEO of Convergence. We do other things as well. There are obviously many, many more perspectives than we can include at the table. And so we find ways to do uh, side discussions or drill down sessions or focus groups where we actively bring some voices with additional lived experience into the discussion so that they can um, participate. In addition, we really put a high degree of emphasis 
during the discussion when it's highlighted that this particular issue or another particular issue is particularly devastating in one community or another, we'll take a pause and we'll excavate that and we'll make sure that we lift it and that we don't accidentally let the um, particular challenges of individual communities get sort of swept underneath the broader universal challenges that we're trying to fix. Do you have any examples you're able or willing to share about some of the work that's been done or some of the, I guess, relationships, connections, or successes you've seen? Sure. So imagine a dialogue that's called re-entry ready, and it's about helping um, ensure that we can lower recidivism when ex-offenders come out of prison. And, um, one of the people that we bring to the table is a private, the head of a private uh, prison facility. Now, they are reviled in so many other spaces in the justice community. And, and many folks said that they wouldn't participate in the discussion if we had uh, private prisons there. But we persisted. We had them there. And this person ended up being in strong uh, relationship and in community with leaders of uh, public facilities, with former inmates, with folks in the nonprofit community, with people from the um, municipal governments. And these relationships continued long past when Reentry Ready issued their report and continues in a way that there's more sharing of best practices, there's a deeper level of trust, and both, from my perspective, both the um, private facilities and the uh, state facilities benefit enormously from having that kind of relationship. We also had some fascinating relationships formed during some of our healthcare discussions. We have folks that were intent on moving a single payer system, uh, push up against folks who were intent on uh, making it even more private and and rolling back uh, Obamacare. And uh, from the beginning, it felt like this was gonna be a really difficult, hard slog. And today, four years after that discussion, some of these people are fast friends. And when they hit challenges around healthcare policy, they call each other because when they call the people in whose bubble they are already sitting, they know the answers. They learn new answers when they call folks that are living in other bubbles. I love that. And that they're at the point where they want that, that the, I, I need to go to another bubble because I've missing pieces and I need the answers. That's fantastic. You were appointed by several presidents to different work. So you, you've had some experience in that national space. Talk a little bit about what you experienced inside that space. And now you're watching that space and you're working with policymakers to try to, you know, convene and, and bridge. And what are your insights on how we can get it 
healing that space or uh, navigating that space in a way that's helpful for our democracy and our society. I've recently been reading the book High Conflict by Amanda Ripley, finding some real uh, gems there in terms of the analysis that it's not that we have conflict, it's that we've moved from productive conflict to conflict that's not productive. My own sense is I've always been surprised by partisanship. I don't quite know why, but it, it was very easy for me to work pretty closely with the Clinton administration when I was at America Online on issues related to child safety, child pornography, as the internet was getting going in the, in the uh, mid-90s. And then when the Bush administration came in to help them work on uh, Freedom Corps and some of the online volunteering initiatives, um, and then after 9-11 to help ensure that the internet was supporting the national work of making sure that when people made contributions to survivors or to rescue organizations, for example, that they were legitimate because in the in that year, 2000, 2001, 2002, there was a lot of fraud at the start of that work. And so when I got called into the Bush administration to run AmeriCorps, it was a wonderful, amazing opportunity. I said I would spend 18 months there. I ended up spending six years. I fell in love with the whole civic engagement space. I fell in love with the nonprofit community. When I left government, I jumped into the nonprofit sector. Um, and the first thing that I did after finishing six years in the Bush administration was work um, with some friends on creating the back end uh, volunteer portal for the incoming Obama administration so that they could have this new tool called serve.gov. And then the next thing I did was I went to the National Constitution Center where I was invited to be CEO by the then chairman, President Clinton. So for me, it's been very organic and it's felt like it's all been very consistent trying to make community stronger, civic engagement stronger, service stronger, and to ensure that this new technology was actually serving uh, the public interests, not just the uh, corporate profit. But I have to say, now looking back on it, in the middle of today's political polarization, it seems a little odd to have sort of flitted across those lines so many times. Um, but I sure wish that it was a more common story. How could people, whether they come to Convergence and do the work with Convergence, whether they're listening to this podcast, uh, or whether they're at the highest levels of government and also frustrated by, you know, whatever, um, what's going on, how can people carry forward this work in their own lives? Um, how would you advise them or what would you want to see from them? Well, I think there's a few things. First of all, um, do you remember that great um, cartoon that I think was in the New Yorker where you saw two fish swimming next to each other uh, with, with word bubbles and one of them was saying to the other, wait, I don't understand. What's water? Yes, totally. Yes, I love that one. <laughs> because it's the environment that they're in, so they don't even see it. And I think the most important thing that 
all of us need to do is sit down and not ask the question, are our perspectives distorted? But to understand, yes, we're in the water. Our perspectives are distorted. All of us live in bubbles. All of us believe the worst about the people in other bubbles. We just need to hold it. We need to own it. And then we need to try to act accordingly. To me, that means finding opportunities to be with people that are not like us. It's remarkable how difficult that is for most of us. I know so many people who want to be in a different place on their journey around race, and they don't have friends of other colors. I know people who want to be in a different place in politics, and they don't know anybody who voted for Trump. So this is where I think there's a real opportunity for the bridging community because everybody has organizations in their community that give them an open invitation to be in conversation with people different than them. And I would say, if you don't know uh, where to go, you can go to convergencepolicy.org. You can go to Civity. You can go to Listen First uh, Project. There's a lot of places, or you can just go into your browser and um, click on bridging or click on uh, being with people different than me. And you'll find places that you can go that will support your coming together and community with people that are different. That's great advice. You wrote an op-ed recently in USA Today about fear. And in addition to not knowing, but in addition to in my water, in my environment, there's no one there. There's also we build up this fear about whatever it is, the unknown or the un unreachable in our space. So what would you say to to sort of talk about that fear component uh, of, of potentially the, the resistance? There's two kinds of fear I, I've discovered that sort of get in the way of people being able to come together. One is just the, the fear of literally beating somebody you don't know and talking to them for a long time. It feels arduous. It feels a little scary. But I believe most of us um, actually have the capacity to overcome that fear. We do it all the time, whether it's as work or in family. But there's a couple of other fears that are that are harder. One fear is that somehow being in community with somebody else will put you on the spot and you'll have to be defending everything you believe. And that's a real fear. Another fear is that you're going to be called on immediately to compromise, that, that in order to have this discussion, you're going to have to give up your values or you're going to have to be legitimizing somebody else's beliefs. And my sense is that all of that is uh, unfounded fear, that when dialogues are put together well, they don't require compromise. There's no reason to give up your values. In fact, the best conversations come between people that have different values that are curious to learn about the other, um, the other perspective. So I have a sense that if people can get past that first fear, which is just of talking to somebody different, it's your typical cocktail party fear. Right. If people can get past that, then they just need to swallow the fact that nobody's asking for compromise. There's no reason to give up your values. And nobody should be called on to defend a full 
set of perspectives. It's not what these kinds of conversations are about. It's a little bit doing our own work because we can all do this. We all individually have the ability to reach out to someone else to have a conversation, get curious, and, and that can lead us somewhere. I couldn't be more proud of the fact that whether it's issues of guns or education or prisoner reentry, we managed to bring leaders together, overcome these differences, forge trust, find common ground and solutions. But at the same time, that's a little bit of an elite process. It carries a little bit of the old idea of the smoke-filled room with the leaders figuring things out. There should be more opportunities, especially with today's technology, to be integrating lots more people, lots more voices, people that have different um, perspectives and lived experiences, both in order to bring some of these powerful ideas from the national dialogue into some more grassroots and local kinds of engagement, and then also bringing perspectives from local and grassroots venues into the national discussion. Thank you to my guest, David Eisner, CEO of the nonprofit bridging organization, Convergence. Find out more at convergencepolicy.org. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.